Well, once upon a time, there were two healthy married men in their 40s. Each of them were athletes in college, and since college, they had lived very active lifestyles. But one day, each of them badly injured a knee, one man in this way and another in that. The kingdom they lived in offered free medical care. They could see a physician who would refer them to a surgeon, and they could even get the surgery and have physical therapy all for free. And so their wives begged them to go see the doctor, but both of them refused. They believed that if they just gave their knee some time, it would heal on its own. After about a week of them uh, limping around the house and moping and the pain not getting any better, the first wife came to her husband and begged him to go see a doctor, but he flatly refused. Uh, He said that uh, the pain wasn't as bad and it would heal on its own, and she reminded him the pain wasn't as bad because he had taken painkillers. He just ignored her. The second wife came to her husband and begged him to go see the doctor, and he lost his temper at her. He was tired of her nagging him, and he didn't want to go see the… he didn't trust doctors. He didn't like them. But the next day, the pain was so bad that finally he gave in, and he went to see the doctor. Which of the two men will receive better medical care? Right? And I share that story because Jesus says that He is the great physician of our souls. And when He says that, He taps into an Old Testament metaphor that talks about our problem with sin. There is an Old Testament metaphor used by the prophets that portrays our sin like a sickness of the soul. And when Jesus came, He said that He is the great physician of the soul, and the healing that He offers is free for the taking for anybody who's interested in listening to Him and coming to Him. But in order to receive the healing, you have to admit that you're sick. Uh, That's just one of the lessons we're going to learn today from the passage we come to in our Christmas series. Uh, I've entitled this year's Christmas series, Why Jesus Came. During His ministry, Jesus told people on a number of occasions why He came into the world, and He gives a number of different reasons for us to look at and take to heart. Last week, we looked at what it means that Jesus came into the world to fulfill Scriptures. This week, we're going to learn from Mark's gospel that Jesus came into the world to call sinners to repentance. Please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, What we're going to read about in Mark 2 happens at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, This happens in the town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, This is a historical account where Jesus calls the most unlikely of disciples to Himself. Thus far, Jesus has called Simon and Andrew and James and John, but that's it. There's only four of the disciples in His inner circle at this point in His ministry, but now He's going to call someone who is a shocking choice to become part of His inner circle of followers. Follow along with me while I read Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 
Uh, Jesus has been in Capernaum. He's just healed a paralytic uh, uh, in a home there in Capernaum. And verse 13, Mark relates, and he went out again by the seashore, and all of the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes and Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to give you some context uh, for this. This is happening in Capernaum, which was a fishing town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee really is a large inland lake. It's 13 miles long and 8 miles wide at its widest point, and there was a variety of edible freshwater fish. Uh, the fishing was best in the north, uh, and that's why there was a lot of fishing villages up on the north shore. Uh, Capernaum, th there were fishing villages to the east and west of Capernaum. There was a whole cluster of them up there on the north side of the lake. And Capernaum was on a trade route that ran from Damascus in the north down into Galilee and then southwest out to the Mediterranean. And on the edge of town, where that trade route entered into the town of Capernaum, there was a tax booth. Now, I don't know how much you've heard about tax collectors in Jesus' day, but they were not popular. Uh, uh, the Roman occupiers levied three main kinds of taxes on Israel. There was a land tax of Israelite landowners that was basically 10% of whatever your land produced, whatever you harvested that year. There was also a head tax. We sometimes call it a poll tax in the Bible, and it, was, it served almost like an informal census. Once a year, every Israelite had to pay the equivalent of one day's wages to the Romans. And then there was a customs tax collected on produce and goods that were brought into the area for sale, and it functioned somewhat like our sales tax. The difference was it was paid by the seller up front to the Romans, and then the expense was passed on to the buyer in the form of increased prices. Um, uh, during Jesus' time, uh, the customs tax wasn't exorbitant by our standards. It was between 2 and 5 percent. But there were two things that made it odious to the people. First of all, it supported the Roman oppressors. It helped finance their occupation and oppression of Israel. And then second, the tax collectors knew how to be a real pain about it. You see, a customs tax, by its very nature, is an indirect tax, so, so that meant the Romans needed an army of tax collectors to extract it. And by this time in Roman history, Rome was done with collecting taxes themselves. Uh, you may have heard of tax collectors called by the old English name publicans. 
Uh, and that's actually a bit of a misnomer. The old King James calls them publicans, but that's a misnomer. The publicans were a Roman organization of tax collectors, but they were done away with in 30 BC by Julius Caesar. Uh, there weren't publicans in the time of Jesus because Rome no longer wanted to go to the trouble of collecting their own taxes. Instead, they farmed it out to tax collectors whom they sometimes called tax farmers. Now, the really different thing about the way the Romans farmed out their tax collection is that they would offer their job to the highest bidder. You would have a wealthy Israelite bid with Rome to collect taxes, or more often what actually happened is a group of Israelites got together and pooled their money like an investment firm, and Rome would give the job to the highest bidder. But here's the catch. Rome would take what the money that they bid up front and get the money up front. And it was a great deal for the Roman Empire for two reasons. Number one, they could avoid the public relations disaster of having ethnic Romans complete with Latin accents extracting taxes from Jewish people. Uh, they, they, they had Jews collect taxes from Jews. But secondly, they got all the money up front risk-free from the highest bidder. And so what you would have is a group of Israelite investors that got together. Let's imagine for our sake that they bid a million dollars to collect uh, the customs tax in Capernaum this year. Uh, well, you had, as you would imagine, different ranks and organization among the tax collectors. Levi was a lower-level tax collector, which is why he's in the booth doing the dirty work. Uh, but Luke tells us about a tax collector named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he most likely had other people who worked for him who did a majority of the dirty work themselves. Um, and what you would have is a chief co tax collector might get the guys together and say, all right, men, uh, we've given Rome a million dollars to collect taxes in Capernaum. We want to bring in two million because we have families to feed. And so th what that means is that there's five of us, and we each need to collect 200,000 in taxes, and so that's your quota for this year, and that's how it would work. Now, here's the really big problem. This is where the big problem came in, and this is why I think we can be very thankful for living in America in the era that we live in. Rome did almost nothing to regulate and restrain the tax collectors, and you can imagine what that leads to, right? What happens when there's lots of money and no accountability? Corruption, right? It, it, there was corruption and robbery among the tax collectors, and what made it so bad was that all the power was on the side of the tax collector. Uh, imagine that you brought a wagon full of goods into Capernaum and Levi's in the tax booth. Well, Levi has all the power. Uh, he has Roman soldiers there to make sure, uh, by force if necessary, that you pay the tax. Um, any of the goods that are in your wagon that you don't declare up front, he has the right to confiscate from you. And he also gets to assess uh, the value of your goods. It looks like you have uh, $5,000 of fish here. It's, it's like 12 fish. No, it's $5,000 worth of fish. Like, uh, and 5% and on $5,000 worth of fish. 5%? I thought it was yesterday it was 4%. Oh, it's Caesar's birthday. But you didn't hear about... No, on Caesar's birthday, it's 5%. I thought we, I thought we communicated that. We didn't communicate that. It's 5%. They knew the tax law, and you didn't. 
and there was no way for you to really appeal their decision. Rome would view you uh, as someone who just didn't want to pay taxes. You, you just didn't want to pay your taxes. That's all that's going on. And so you had really no effective right of appeal. And in essence, what it did was it made the tax collectors unaccountable. Uh, they had no accountability. And when there's no accountability, you know where human nature goes. Many tax collectors got rich defrauding their countrymen by taking excess taxes that they then kept for themselves. And even if they had been honest, even if they had made sure the tax code was transparent to everybody, even if they had made it a habit to underassess goods and services to be kind to a fellow Israelite and the, and the soldiers didn't care, even if they had tried to go about it the right way, nevertheless, they were still collaborating with the Roman oppressors and they were helping to finance, by their collaboration, they were helping to finance the Roman occupation of Israel. And so they were viewed as traitors to their people and also cheats and robbers. To give you an illustration of just how hated they were, the oral traditions of the scribes and Pharisees were written down, uh, they were recorded to be kept for posterity's sake in 200 AD in a book called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there are these three categories of sinners always listed together. Uh, it is um, uh, thieves, robbers, and tax collectors. And if you read about the over and over again in the Mishnah, thieves, robbers, and tax collectors, that's like the formula. Uh, the Jews wouldn't allow tax collectors to hold any of the limited public offices in Jewish life that the Romans allowed. The Romans allowed the Jews to have a certain amount of local uh, public offices uh, amongst themselves to, to keep control of their own culture, and tax collectors were not allowed by Jewish authorities to hold any of those offices. They couldn't give testimony in Jewish courts because they were uh, viewed as liars. The rabbis taught that they were unclean uh, not because you could necessarily prove they had done something to become unclean. They were just assumed ahead of time to be unclean because of their uh, dealings with the Romans. They weren't welcome in the synagogue. And uh, you know this, that in Judaism, there was a, a theologically conservative group and a theologically liberal group that, that rarely agreed on anything. And, and sort of the ways that if you interact with uh, like Orthodox Judaism today, they like to read the Mishnah and the Talmud, and the way they do theology, it doesn't have as sharp as a doctrinal edge as we have. The way they view it is, we're going to read all these theologians who don't necessarily agree with each other, we'll read the different rabbis, and no one of the rabbis, even your favorite one, no one of the rabbis probably has a corner on all the truth, and by interacting with all of it and hearing all viewpoints, we can sort of arrive at a at a pretty good estimation of what truth is. And they're a lot more open-minded about the whole exercise uh, than we are. Not that we don't want to be open-minded, but we do believe in arriving at doctrinal conclusions and, and having convictions. And, uh, the, and so, in Judaism, you read from both sides, and it's supposed to make you a more well-rounded person. Well, you know that the conservative group and the liberal group rarely ever agree with each other. And yet, in the Mishnah, rabbis from both sides agree with each other that it is okay to lie to tax collectors. You can bear false witness to a tax collector with the approval of the rabbis. 
according to the Mishnah. That's how hated they were, right? And, and so, it is a bit shocking that Jesus would go to a tax collector and invite a tax collector to become one of his followers. And, and even more shocking, because the way things worked back then is uh, uh, you had to ask, as the student, you had to ask the rabbi to allow you into the group. You had to apply. But here, Jesus comes to Levi and singles him out and invites him to come. And I would love to know, this is one of those questions for heaven, I would like to know what was going through Simon's ma and Andrew and James and John. I want to know what they were thinking when Jesus did this. This just seems like the perfect opportunity for Simon to take Jesus aside and say, teacher, you do realize you have a reputation to be concerned about, right? Like, this would be the perfect moment. I think it's shocking that Jesus would choose Levi. Now, many of you know Levi's other name is Matthew. That's how we know him as a disciple, by his name Matthew. And uh, later on in history, the Holy Spirit would inspire Matthew, uh, Levi, to write the gospel account that we know as Matthew. It's just shocking. And what's shocking, I suppose, from a human point of view is that Levi immediately got up, left it all behind, and followed Jesus. He left a guaranteed income in a culture that didn't have a government-run social safety net. Uh, and I think that shows that God was doing a work of grace in Levi's heart. Uh, now, this is one of the stranger passages, I think, in, Bi in the Bible. This is one of those moments where real life is stranger than fiction. You couldn't write a novel uh, with this scene in it and expect people to believe it. It's like a twilight moment. Jesus, the greatest teacher and miracle worker, invites a tax collector into his inner circle, and for his part, the tax collector wants to join him. Now, what happens next is that Levi, uh, Levi, we find out, is that he's a true follower of Jesus. He loves Jesus. He wants to introduce all of his friends to Jesus. He wants to see his friends follow Jesus as well. And so, what he does is he puts on a dinner party at his house to introduce all of his tax collector friends to Jesus. In verse 15, Mark moves right from Levi leaving the tax booth to Jesus reclining at table. And you're kind of like, whoa, reclining at table where? Well, it was Levi's house. In his account, Luke gives us a little bit more explanation, so it doesn't feel as abrupt in Luke's gospel. Luke records that uh, there was a big reception that Levi put on at his house with a big crowd of tax collectors and, quote, other people. Uh, as, resident, as a resident of Capernaum, I think, this is my theory, I think Levi had already heard Jesus' teaching. I think he had been exposed to some of Jesus' teaching, probably not in the synagogue, but when Jesus taught the crowds, like maybe on the Sermon on the Mount or uh, in other public places, I think he may have seen Jesus heal people and been aware of Jesus as a healer. And I think he had some uh, awareness of who Jesus is and what he taught, and he wants to introduce his friends to Jesus. And who are Levi's friends? Bad company. That's who they are. When Luke says other people, I think he's being polite. Mark says they're sinners. Now, you know this intuitively if you've ever read through the Gospels. You know that that word sinners gets used with different definitions in the New Testament. For instance, 
The Pharisees tended to think of anybody who wasn't a fellow Pharisee as a sinner. You know, they liked to look down on the common people who, who didn't uh, study the Old Testament law as closely as they did, right? And so they, they thought of people as sinners. Uh, it can also be used in the New Testament to describe people who are ceremonially unclean, not by accident or through no fault of their own, but because they're simply not even paying attention to or following uh, the cleanliness laws that Moses communicated. It's sort of just that they're unclean because they don't even care uh, uh, kind of a thing. They're sinners. Um, and I don't think either of those are the meaning here. Sinner can also be used as a general term for anybody who isn't walking in God's way. Uh, at His betrayal, if you remember, Jesus said He was being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Well, I don't think He meant He was being betrayed into the hands of people who were ceremonially unclean. I don't think He meant I'm being betrayed into the hands of non-Pharisees. I think He meant I'm being betrayed into the hands of people who aren't doing God's will, who don't walk with God, who aren't following God. Uh, and these people who Mark calls sinners, they've led a life very much like Levi up to this point. And so the question becomes, how's this going to work out? This is going to be a very interesting dinner party, I think. Jesus, His disciples, tax collectors, sinners, scribes, and Pharisees. That's, that's, this is going to be an interesting evening. And shockingly, as we begin to watch the evening unfold, Jesus seems very comfortable with it all. He just seems right at home because these are the kinds of people He came to call to repentance. And for their part, the tax collectors and sinners, they, they're attracted to Jesus. They, they hear Jesus out, and they want to become followers of Him as well. They want to leave behind the life they've lived that they're not so proud of and follow Jesus. Uh, it's amazing. It's an amazing scene. Um, they hear the call of Jesus. They're willing to leave their life behind to follow Him. And so you have this strange dinner party where Jesus and His disciples and tax collectors and people that the respectable people in the community consider to be publicly known sinners. They're all eating together, and they receive what Jesus teaches with joy. But I did leave out that other group. The other group on the list uh, includes the scribes and Pharisees. Now, the scribes and Pharisees, they knew the Old Testament really well. They knew the text of the Old Testament well. They had large, we know from history, they had large portions of it memorized, especially uh, the law of Moses. And you would think at face value that having people there who knew the Old Testament well would be a wonderful addition to the party. You would think that when they saw this happening, they might say something like this, this is great. This is what Messiah came to do. He came to open blind eyes. He came to open the eyes of people who've lived most of their lives ignoring God, ignoring His law, living however they wanted, ignoring synagogue. Um, he came to free people from sexual sin, 
and there's a lot of people in the room who are sexual sinners. He came to free people from making uh, uh, money into an idol, like these tax collectors, uh, right? He came to bring the light of truth to people who've spent most of their lives ignoring Him. Uh, this is great. This is going to clean up the town. These people are going to come. These people who we've been trying to get to synagogue are finally going to attend synagogue with us this week. You would think that this would be well-received by the scribes and Pharisees, but that's not their response. Look at verse 16. When the scribes and Pharisees saw that He was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to His disciples, why is He eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? <clears throat> now, think about that question for a moment. Why is Jesus eating with sinners? Answer, because if He didn't eat with sinners, He'd be eating alone, right? According to the diagnosis of the Old Testament, there's only two kind of people in that room, at Le in, in the, uh, the reception area at Levi's house. There's Jesus, who was sinless, and everybody else who are sinners, right? What does the Old Testament say? Uh, what does David say? Psalm 14, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, but they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That phrase, not even one, is a phrase we're supposed to take literally. All of humanity has gone astray. Everyone has turned from God to go his or her own way. Now, think about that, what the Pharisees are doing in context. If I had been at the dinner party, and let's imagine I'm, you know, I'm sitting with a Pharisee, and the Pharisee makes the observation that these tax collectors and sinners, that there is a kind of spiritual blindness that their lives and their decisions to this point uh, demonstrate, right? I mean, they betray… it's not just that they betrayed their own people, they betrayed God's chosen people uh, to get rich working with the Romans. They ignored God's law to live their own way. I think it's safe to assume… I know I keep saying this, but I'm using sanctified imagination. You be discerning about it. I think it's safe to assume that these tax collectors and sinners uh, were not regularly attending the synagogue for worship, right? And so, yes, uh, their lives to this point demonstrate a, a kind of spiritual blindness. But the problem with the observation is that they're not the only ones in the room who are spiritually blind. Why does he eat with sinners has to be one of the most arrogant questions you could ever ask. The only way you could ask it is if you've concluded that you're not a sinner. This is the irrationality of self-righteousness, especially for someone who's read God's law. It's a spiritual blindness uh, to read God's law and not think you're a sinner. And really, the spiritual blindness of the scribes and Pharisees is shocking at this dinner party. And if you think that… Uh, I, th I think when you think about it, as we talk about sinners, since sin is the subject, uh, I think there's only really three kinds of sinners. There are those living in sin but who are oblivious to it because they have no… they just don't think in those categories. They haven't been… they've never been exposed to 
to the Bible or Christianity or God's laws. They just don't think in those terms. And what we want to do here at Grace Fellowship Church is we want to move out into the world, and we want to help others see themselves in the mirror of God's law, see their spiritual sickness for what it is, and come to the great physician of the soul for healing. The second kind of sinner is the self-righteous sinner. Now, this sinner uh, can be a a religious, self-righteous person like the scribes and Pharisees, but they could also be irreligious. It's possible for someone who's an atheist or an agnostic to have a a keen sense of self-righteousness because they believe that they're giving themselves to the right causes and doing good to further those causes in the world. It's not just religious self-righteousness. You can have sort of an awe-religious self-righteousness as well. And when you believe you're a good person who's led a pretty good life, uh, then the cross seems to be irrelevant. The gospel of Jesus seems to be irrelevant. Why would I need saving? I'm not a bad person. I've lived a good life. And the problem with this is that self-righteousness is the premier enemy of the gospel because people who think they're healthy won't come to Jesus as the great physician. There's a third kind of sinner who agrees with the diagnosis of God's Word, who comes to the great physician of the soul, confesses their sin, and believes in Jesus. But here's the catch. Here's the warning. Self-righteousness, even in the hearts of those who come to Christ, dies hard. Even those who've come to Christ still can easily fall into the trap of self-righteousness. We can still congratulate ourselves on living uh, publicly uh, upstanding and respectable lives. We can subtly look down on people we consider to be tax collectors and sinners. And the problem with that is that it's not only spiritually unhealthy for those who follow Jesus to be self-righteous, that's true, but it also makes us less helpful to everyone around us. And here's why. Self-righteousness crushes our usefulness to others. Because ministry, and nothing crushes ministry like self-righteousness, because you don't get excited about doing ministry to people you like to look down on. On the other hand, no one gives grace better than someone who's already persuaded they desperately need grace. Our desperate sense of spiritual need is actually what propels our ministry to others. In a healthy way, it makes us more gentle with others because we realize we haven't been great people. It makes us more patient because we're aware of how patient God has had to be with us and how slowly, and and the fact that we really have been slow learners and poor disciples ourselves. Nobody gives mercy better than people who are aware they've received mercy. We tend to be more forgiving to others when we're aware of how much we've already been forgiven. And so, uh, we need to say here, there is a warning to us, even to those of us who've chosen to follow Jesus and recognize Him as the great physician of our souls. There still is a danger of self-righteousness that the, the, the response of the scribes and Pharisees alerts us to. Well, for his part, Jesus overhears their question. He, doesn't, he, he overhears what they're saying. He doesn't need to wait for his disciples to come and ask him, right? He just, he just turns to the Pharisees and scribes and gives them a direct answer. Verse 17, and hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, 
but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Imagine that I got up tomorrow morning, and uh, I had breakfast, and I was in a particularly good mood, and I said to Brooke, um, uh, honey, I'm feeling so good today, I think I'm going to go into the urgent care and see a doctor. Right? It's, just, it's laughable. That makes no sense. You go to the doctor because you're sick. Jesus didn't come to call people who think they're spiritually healthy. He's a spiritual physician, and if they think they're spiritually healthy, they, they won't come to Him. They don't see the need. And so the message He brings is only a message of hope to those who know and confess that they are spiritually sick sinners. He didn't come to call people who think they're righteous, but those who confess they're sinners. Now, in other sections of the New Testament, we are told to confess our sins, but we need to define, because of the way the, the church is in our day and, and human nature and the confusion that exists, we need to define what confession is. Confession, uh, to confess, is a compound word in Greek, homologeo. It comes from two words, homo, meaning the same as, and legeo, meaning to speak. So when I confess, I say the same, th I speak the same thing, I say the same thing as God says about my sin. In other words, I agree with His diagnosis. In the Scriptures, agreeing with God's diagnosis means I take responsibility for my own sin without justifying it or shifting the blame. So let me give you an example. Uh, if you were to admit, imagine that I were to admit this. Um, yes, I did that thing that was wrong yesterday. Uh, that was bad behavior on my part. I shouldn't have done it. And, uh, and it, it was wrong of me. It, it was sin. Uh, but it's not my fault. My love cup was running on empty. My father dealt me a wound when I was a child that I'll never get over. Uh, I went through this trauma at a younger age, and sociological studies show that when people go through this kind of trauma, they, they tend to act out in these ways. And so everything evil I've done and everything evil I've become is all explained by what happened in my past, even though that was 40 years ago. All right, what have I done? I did confess that I did it, and I ought not to have done it. But is that confession? No, that's not agreeing with God's diagnosis. That actually is a form of saying, yes, I did it, and it was wrong behavior, but it's, that's actually a way of shifting the blame. If I may use psychological language to express confession, it is agreeing with God that the disorder is me at my deepest level of what I want and what I live for. The disease is that I compulsively rebel against the one who made me and loves me. The dysfunction is who I am and what I live for, and the fact that I keep trying to make this life as if it's all about me, as if I'm the center of the whole thing. And so confession, that kind of confession that agrees with the diagnosis of Scripture, that is what Jesus is calling sinners to. And we know that not just because other passages in the New Testament teach us to confess, but because of what Jesus taught on this specific occasion at Levi's house. Luke records, in his record of this event, Luke records the full transcript of what Jesus said. According to Luke, Jesus didn't just say, I've come to call sinners. According to Luke, the full transcript is this, I have come to call sinners to repentance. 
Wayne Grudem defines repentance this way, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin and renunciation of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So, Jesus came into the world to call sinners to repentance, and the reason I spent so long talking about confession is this, you cannot repent of what you won't first confess. Confession comes first. Repentance is always downstream from confession. So, if we don't define confession right, it's going to tweak our definition of repentance in a bad way. Uh, And so, Jesus came into the world to call sinners to confession that agrees with God's diagnosis of their sin and to repentance. So, then given the fact that God's Son came into the world to call sinners to repentance, how should we as a church body respond? Well, I'd like to emphasize three ways. Number one, we own up to the fact that we are sinners and that Jesus came into the world to call us to repentance and faith. We agree with God's diagnosis of us. God is willing to forgive you of every evil thing you've ever done, but you have to agree with His diagnosis of your problem. His diagnosis is that you are, in fact, evil, and you do evil. And if you're curious as to how He ever could have come to such an unflattering conclusion about the state of your soul, um, you can review the spiritual EKG He's given you, right? We do EKGs sometimes to, to diagnose uh, heart disease, right? An EKG is an electrocardiogram. Uh, did I get that right? Electro, yeah, electrocardiogram, right? Well, you can do, you can look at the same, uh, imagine uh, in the physical realm if you break a bone, right? Uh, the doctor does an x-ray. <clears throat> you can look at the x-ray for yourself and see right where the bone is broken. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. You can look at the same EKG God has done on your soul, and it'll only take you five minutes. J- just get alone with God's Word and do two things. Read Exodus 20, and then flip forward and read Matthew 5. In Exodus 20, you find God's summary of the commandments given in the form of the Ten Commandments. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, you find Jesus preaching the spirit and intent, (coughs) excuse me, the spirit and, and intent of what those Ten Commandments communicate. So, just read down through the Ten Commandments, read down through what Jesus says about how the commandments apply in daily life, and then take a moment to just honestly review your own moral track record. If you'll do that, looking at God's law, I think you could begin to see how it is that He came to the conclusion that you are evil and do evil and that you need a Savior. Again, God is willing to forgive you of everything evil you've ever done, but you have to agree with Him that the problem runs deep, that you are a sinner, and you have to ask Him to forgive you. And He will forgive you and cleanse you because He sent His Son to die for your sins on the cross. But let's imagine that you've already done that. I know many of you in here have already turned from living your own way, you're followers of Jesus. Uh, So, let's imagine that that's where you are. How do we apply this passage to ourselves if we're already followers of Jesus. Well, Jesus taught many things, but both Matthew and Mark record what the main emphasis of His teaching was when He began His ministry in Galilee and was going around to the various synagogues 
teaching the people. In fact, Mark sums up the main point of what Jesus preached this way in chapter 1, verses uh, 14 and 15 of His gospel. Uh, He says, now after John the Baptist was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now, when Jesus said that, uh, in the Greek language, He used uh, the, the present tense and the imperative mood to say, repent and believe. What does that mean? Well, imperative just means a command. He gave it to people as a command. You need to repent and believe. But the present tense in Greek, it functions a little bit different than our present tense in English. When coupled with a command, it contains the idea of starting something and continuing uh, to do it into the future. And so, the essence of what Jesus called people to was this, repent and keep on repenting, believe and keep on believing. And that applies to you and I who've already been in this faith for years. Yes, you repented of living your own way and turned to Christ. You've publicly identified, I know most of you have, you've publicly identified with Him in baptism, but there is an as yet, uh, 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 there is still inside of you uh, a portion of the soul that the New Testament refers to as the flesh that is as yet unsanctified and continues to fall into sin. And so, repenting means to continue to confess your sins for what they are and to keep turning away from sin. Maybe we could portray uh, making the decision to finally come to Christ and bow the knee to Him as Lord, as repentance, capital R, and what you do as a Christian afterwards as repentance, lowercase r, right? Or Jesus talked about it with Peter, that those who've already come to Him, they don't need, uh, they don't need to be completely bathed, but they do need a foot washing, right? Those are illustrations. I think John, th- this, this reason and this issue of sanctification, growth in the Christian life, this is why John Calvin said the Christian life is a race of repentance, because he saw that our need for repentance doesn't go away just because we came to Christ. We still fall into sin, and we still need to turn uh, from that back to the Lord. And also, we could say it this way, yes, you've believed in the gospel. Keep on believing and enduring in this faith until the end. The gospel is not a bunch of historical facts about Jesus of Nazareth that we believe. It contains those, yes, about His death and resurrection, But maybe we could say it more properly this way. The gospel, here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe the gospel is a person that we follow for a lifetime. The Christian life is a race of repentance, and it is a life of persevering in this faith until the end. There's another way that this passage, I think, applies to us uh, who follow Jesus. But in order to see it, you have to see Levi's own account of what happened at his house. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, and remember Matthew is Levi's other name, uh, Matthew records what happened between Jesus and the Pharisees this way. He adds just sort of one sentence. Listen if you can uh, identify it as I read. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, He said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Go and learn was a common rabbinic rebuke for students who didn't know what they already should have known well by this point. Uh, Their reading of the Old Testament should have taught the Pharisees that God prefers compassion to sacrifice. And that rebuke applies to those of us who follow Jesus as well. We are sinners, and yet God has not treated us according to what our sins deserve, but according to His mercy. And the knowledge of how uh, much we've been forgiven and how patient God has already been with us should help us to be patient and have compassion for our fellow sinners. It should help us rejoice when we see people we consider to be tax collectors and sinners repent. And so, beloved, during this Christmas season, we choose to celebrate when God the Son came into the world, but why did He come? Well, He came to call sinners to repentance, and according to Matthew's gospel, He also came to call Pharisees to repentance and compassion. This Christmas and every Christmas, the call of Jesus on your life is to repent and keep on repenting, to believe and keep on believing, and to show compassion to your fellow sinners. Let's pray.